And so last week, we talked about the fact that there's hope for me, because like we want to know that there's hope for us. Because when, when, when I lay in bed at night, and it's just me and my thoughts, maybe you're similar. When you lay in bed at night, it's just you and your thoughts. You know you. <laughs> and some days you're like, I'm a disaster. <laughs> And maybe a lot of days you feel that way, but there's still hope for me. There's still hope for you, and that's just something we can celebrate. But that hope isn't rooted in me doing better or me working harder or me finding the right plan. That hope is rooted in Jesus Christ, in this relationship that we can have with him. Because if it's left up to me, we are doomed. I am doomed to disaster. But it's not left up to me, it's left up to Jesus. And so this week, we want to look at that a little more fully. We want to look at when we say there's hope in Christ, what does that mean? So we're in this series called A New Hope. We're coming from Matthew chapter 5. That's what you're going to want to find in the next couple of minutes. We're in chapter 5. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 12. We used this word like blessed or, or satisfied or a deep sense of joy or uh, it is well with my soul, this, this sense of well-being that can come even in the midst of life's challenges and disasters and difficulties, and when I realize I'm a disaster, there is this sense of satisfaction that can be had because Jesus is with, there, with us in that. He's there with us in that, and that's where this sense of blessed can come. That's verses 1 through 12, and we're going to skip to verse 17 this morning uh, because we want to talk about where that hope in Christ, how that's rooted, what that looks like, what did Jesus say about that. There's some verses in between there that Rick is super excited about preaching about, and he's gone this week on a cruise, and so he said that I could not, I was not allowed to have those verses. He didn't really say it that way, but he's so excited about that section, so we'll tackle kind of that in-between part next week. This week, we're in verse 17, but in order to get us there, I need us to do a little bit of thinking about the history of the world. It's okay. It'll be Krish's version. It'll be very simple. When you were a kid, like in, in, in preschool or kindergarten, did, did they make you put on your imagination cap? Was that a thing? Okay, do we still have those? Okay, good. So let's put those on, and I want us to think together and imagine together the history of the world. We think about the very beginning, like there was nothing, and then God created and God created him in Adam and Eve, and everything was perfect, and it was going well. And not too long after that, Adam and Eve sinned, and they broke that perfection, and everything started falling apart. And the history of the world moves on. See, it's the Chris version. We're going to ramp up some stuff together. And over time, people are trying to figure out, how do we live in this world, in this planet, with this perfect, holy God? Like, how do I, as a broken person with all my stuff and stuff, how do I live with other people, let alone with this perfect holy God? And so they came up with ideas and they tried some things, and it's, it's not hard to imagine that it didn't work very well. And so over time, God did this thing where he gathered this group of people to himself. Later on, they'll get the name Israelites Jews or Hebrews. He called these people to himself and he said, hey, I want to explain to you how to live in this weird, broken, messed up world with a perfect holy God. I want you to know how to live here in this planet with each other, but also with this perfect holy God. And so God gave all these rules, commands, laws that really set the stage of how to live in this planet with this perfect holy God. Matter of fact, it's like the uh, terms and conditions on the bottom of every Apple contract or any software you download, right? And you, all, you never read it, I know. You just hit I agree at the end and whatever. But it's like God laid out all these terms and conditions. We, we call that the Old Testament now. 
this whole section of the Bible, God has this whole concept that he lays out of how it's supposed to look to live in this planet with this perfect holy God as broken, messed up people. And you know some of this, even if you've never read uh, the Old Testament or you're like, the, oh, the first half of the Bible. Yeah, I don't go there. It's weird, right? That's, that's okay because, because you know some of this, all these commands. Matter of fact, you've probably heard the phrase, the Ten Commandments. Maybe you don't know what they are, you've never read them, but you've heard about people fighting about getting a statue put up of them or hanging them in rooms of classrooms or courthouses or something like that. You've probably heard this phrase, the Ten Commandments. That's part of this whole body of law that's supposed to help people figure out how to live with God. Here they are, in case you're trying to remember number nine right now. You're like, what were they again? Uh, No other gods, right? No idol images. Uh, Don't misuse God's name. Uh, take a Sabbath or a rest day every week. Right? Honor your dad and your mom. Uh, don't murder. That's like a good one, right? Uh, don't sleep with other people's spouses. Uh, don't steal. Uh, don't lie in court. And don't be jealous of other people's stuff. So Ten Commandments, we call them like the Big Ten or whatever. Like some, some of you are, oh yeah, I remember, I remember hearing about that one. My mom used to always use that one on me. Like, honor your mother, right? And you're like, oh, I remember that one. Now she's still, and then, then she'd spank me or whatever. So we kind of have some sense of this. But what's interesting is that uh, uh, those 10 are set in a body of like at least 600 other laws and rules and commands of what needed to happen in order for people to live with this perfect holy God because what they were doing wasn't working. And so there's all these rules that God said, these are the terms and conditions. This is how it'll look. Matter of fact, um, the, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments are found in Exodus chapter 20. You, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I'm just going to bounce around. But in chapter 21 of the same book, it's like just a few words later, these are some of those other rules or laws. Uh, God says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he's to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. Well, that's, that's great to know, right? Uh, or you skip down to verse, uh, in verse 12, it says, anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. Whoa, right? Uh, in verse 16, it says, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Like kidnapping apparently was a thing. Like, like it had to be written down how kidnappers should be because there was so much kidnapping going on. Never mind. Okay, so if you go to verse uh, 28, it says, If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull is to be stoned and its meat must not be eaten. It's good because you were thinking, oh, that just happened yesterday. Like this bull I had gored some people. Like, like the rules, here's the point. The rules that are put down, the law, all that stuff is very, very specific. Matter of fact, over in 20, chapter 22, in verse 21, it says, uh, God says, don't mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. That's interesting. God talks about what do you do with people who aren't of the country that you're in. In chapter 23, he says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, uh, be sure to return it. <laughs> like, God was so thorough. And, and there's, there's 615, depending on how you number them, of these uh, rules, commands, terms uh, uh, to, to live by. Uh, and they're, they're, they're expansive. They cover the gamut from, from how you treat employees to, to, to what you do with a bull that gores someone to what you do with uh, um, uh, certain kinds of food that you should or shouldn't eat and certain kinds of clothes and how to keep your hair and, and what do you do with like gross things like if, if your clothes are moldy, how do you deal with that? Like it's incredibly uh, thorough. Matter of fact, if you ever try to read through the Bible in a year, Leviticus is where you bog down. <laughs> 
because it just gets weird, and you're like, wait, what? Why does God care about, and there's some in my head I don't want to say, but why does God care about that? Like, that's so strange. But again, God is trying to answer the question, how do people live in this situation with a holy God? Here's the problem. It still didn't go great. At least 600 of these. And so it's inevitable that you're going to bust some of those. You're going you're to miss them. And so God is so good, he set up this system that when you broke one of the laws, then there would be some kind of a way you could, you could pay for that, you could take care of that, and enter back into right relationship with him. Uh, you might have heard it called like the sacrificial system. Maybe you've, you've seen movies or whatever. But there was this idea that if you broke uh, this law, then maybe you would sacrifice this kind of animal to pay for that. Or if you broke uh, this law, you'd take some uh, grain and maybe burn it. Or you, if you broke this law, maybe you would sprinkle some stuff on the altar and and do whatever. So there was this system built of not only the terms and conditions of what it looks like to live uh, with God, but also what happens if you break those things. Do you still have your imagination caps on with me? Did I lose you yet? Okay, we're together. What happens when you break those things? And the problem, even with that, was that as these people were living that out, breaking these laws and then offering these sacrifices to try to make that right, it always felt like something was missing. Like something a little bit less than. Like it was, it was good, not great. It left something to be desired. Like kind of like eating tofu. You know, I mean, it, may, it fills you up and you feel a little full, but you're like, Wah. if you love tofu, I love you. But uh, there is something, or, or maybe like decaf coffee. Don't, don't stone me. Like decaf coffee, it tastes good, but you're like, I just miss it. Or maybe diet pop, Right? Don't hate me. I just say, like, there's something. You drink that, and you're like, good. Something seems. And this system that God put into place, there was this built-in deficiency to it that always seemed to point to something else. If you don't like that put negatively, we could say there was a built-in anticipation in that system uh, for something else. And this is the context that Jesus was born into and in which Jesus is going to speak the words into. And we're going to read them in Matthew chapter 5. This is what Jesus speaks into. And with your thinking caps still on, your imagination caps, imagine your life every day, 615 at least, rules to live by. 615. You know, I, I can't remember to change the laundry when my wife says, hey, could you change out the laundry today? That's one thing. I'm like, absolutely. And I, for, I don't know where it goes. Like two minutes later, it's not in my head anymore. If, if Emily, my wife, left me a honeydew list of 615 things to do every day for 42 years, I'm doomed, <laughs> right? Every day, hundreds of laws, rules, terms of, uh, of agreement, conditions on what it looks like to live. 600 of those things. I, I want us to feel this sense of overwhelmed. I want us to feel this sense of like, that's, that's really oppressive, Yes, all kinds of rules and laws. There was a, um, an author back in 2005. He did this uh, experiment. His name is A.J. Jacobs, and for one year, he decided uh, he was going to live uh, exactly according to the Bible. And so he went through and he listed out all 600 and some, he's got a few more, uh, laws, and he decides he's going to live by them. The, the title of the book is The Year of Living Biblically, one man's humble quest to follow the Bible as literally as possible. 
And I'll, and I'll put a PG-13 rating on the book if you're interested in getting it. I, I enjoyed it greatly. But, um, but the laws are incredibly specific to every detail of life. You tracking with me? You're picking up, right? And, and so he decides to live those out with his spouse, with his wife, in his uh, apartment. Now, it's interesting because they're so detailed, these laws and rules. They, they, they include everything, everything from what you eat to your hygiene to what you wear to sex to how you cut your hair, the type of fabrics you can and can't use, how you relate to other people. It's incredibly comprehensive. Matter of fact, that's a before and after picture because part of that Old Testament law was how you grew out your facial hair. It's incredibly detailed, incredibly specific. To add uh, some interesting stuff to A.J. Jacobs' story, he lives in New York City. This isn't like he lives in the backwoods of somewhere. Even maybe DeWitt, Michigan, you could get away with this, right? Because who's going to see you? But he's downtown, on the subway, taking cabs, walking down the center of, you know, whatever, in Central Park. And so this is kind of his world. He dresses like that for a whole year. He takes on and adopts these attitudes. And the other interesting thing about Jacobs is that he's not religious at all. Uh, he's Jewish by ethnicity, by birth, but he's not religious at all. And so he's truly doing this as, as an experiment on what it would look like for a person in, in 20, uh, 2005, 2007 when he writes, what it would look like for a person in our contemporary society to live according to all these laws in the Bible. He writes a journal. The journal becomes his book. I want to read you one entry. It won't go on the screen. You have to stick with me. Keep your imagination caps on. This is what he says. Uh, month three... November, because he he starts based on a Hebrew calendar, whatever. He says, day 62. It's been more than a month since my mixed fiber adventure. He's talking about the clothing he's wearing. He says, time for me to tackle the second item on my list of most perplexing laws, capital punishment. The Hebrew scriptures prescribe a tremendous amount of capital punishment. Think Saudi Arabia, multiply by Texas, then triple that. Uh, It wasn't just for murder. You could also be executed for adultery, blasphemy, breaking the Sabbath, perjury, incest, bestiality, and witchcraft, among others. A rebellious son could be sentenced to death, as could a son who is a persistent drunkard and glutton. The most commonly mentioned punishment method in the Hebrew Bible is stoning. So I figured at the very least I should try to stone someone. But how? I figured my loophole would be this. The Bible doesn't specify the size of stones. So, pebbles. A few days ago, I gathered a handful of small white pebbles from Central Park, which I stuffed in my back pants pocket. Now all I needed were some victims. I decided to start with Sabbath breakers. That's easy enough to find in this workaholic city. I noticed that a pot-bellied guy at the Avis down our block had worked on both Saturday and Sunday, so no matter what, he was a Sabbath breaker. Here's the thing, though. Even with pebbles, it is surprisingly hard to stone people. My plan had been to walk nonchalantly past the Sabbath violator and chuck the pebbles at the small of his back. But after a couple of failed passes, I realized it was a bad idea. Uh, A chucked pebble, no matter how small, does not go unnoticed. My revised plan. I were to pretend to be clumsy and drop the pebble on his shoe. So I did. And in this way, I stoned. But it was probably the most polite stoning in history. I said, I'm sorry, and then I leaned down to pick up the pebble. And he leaned down at the same time, and we almost butted heads. And then he apologized, and then I apologized again. Highly unsatisfying. (laughs) Today I get another chance. I'm resting in a small public park on the Upper West Side, the kind where you see retirees eating tuna sandwiches on benches. Hey, you're dressed weird. 
I looked over. The speaker is an elderly man, mid-70s, I I'd guess. Uh, he is tall and thin and wearing one of those caps that cabbies wore from the movies in the 1940s. You're dressed weird, he snarls. Why are you dressed so weird? I have on my usual tassels and for good measure have worn some sandals and I'm carrying a knotty maple walking stick I bought on the internet for $25. I'm trying to live by the rules of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, stoning adulterers. You're stoning adulterers? Uh, yeah, I'm stoning adulterers. I'm an adulterer. You're currently an adulterer? Yeah. Tonight, tomorrow, yesterday, two weeks from now, you're going to stone me? If I could, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> I'll punch you in the face. I'll send you to the cemetery. He's serious. This isn't a cutesy, grumpy old man. This is an angry old man. This is a man with seven decades of hostility behind him. I fish out my pebbles from my back pocket. Hey, I wouldn't stone you with big stones, I say. Just these little guys. I open my palm to show him the pebbles, and he lunges at me, grabbing one out of my hand, then flinging it at my face. It whizzes by my cheek. I'm stunned for a second. I hadn't expected this grizzled old man to make the first move, but now there's nothing stopping me from retaliating, an eye for an eye. I take, I take one of the remaining pebbles, and I whip it at his chest, and it bounces off. I'll punch you in the kisser, he says. Well, you really shouldn't commit adultery, I say. We stare at each other. My pulse is doubled. Yes, he is a septuagenarian. Yes, he has just threatened me using corny honeymooners dialogue. But you could tell this man has a strong dark side. Our glaring contest lasts 10 seconds, and then he walks away, brushing me as he leaves. Here's the point of all that, and everything we've set up till now, is that the rules to live by, this law that had been written, Jesus speaks into that Context. And now that that picture is in your head, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappears, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teach others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. <laughs> what do we do with that? This body of laws, this thing that, that God laid out to help people understand how to live with him, this thing that none of us do. I don't think any of us try and follow all 600 of those laws, let alone the Ten Commandments. I'm not even sure if that's something we remember. Like, What do we do with what Jesus says there? Here's what I want to do. I want to try and keep it simple. So three things Jesus is saying. Three things Jesus is not saying, and then, and then why this matters at all. Because I think this matters greatly. The challenge with a passage like this is a lot of times we read it, and we just kind of skip over it. Because we're like, oh, the law of prophets, I don't, I don't know, I don't care, that's not for me, I'm gone. Let's move on to the next thing. Come on, Jesus, get to some miracles. <laughs> that's good stuff. Tell a story, right? Because that stuff, that's fun stuff. It's good stuff. And we just skip over this type of stuff. But man, what Jesus says in just a couple of sentences absolutely sets up why like he can be our hope. And, and so Jesus starts by talking about the law and the prophets, and I'll just say this, the law and the prophets, that phrase, the law and the prophets, was a very Jewish Hebrew way of describing the entire Old Testament. 
They, they had kind of set up the Old Testament. They had broken it up a little differently than we do. They had what they called the law, which is five, five, first five books of the Old Testament. And then they had this section they called the prophets, which is much, pretty much any, anyone that has like a person name on the book. And then the writings was like a catch-all for everything else. You think like Psalms and Proverbs, if you know the Old Testament. All. So when, when Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, he's talking about that entire Old Testament. He'll keep saying law, but he's talking about that whole thing. So three things then that Jesus is saying. If you're using the North Point app, there's some fill-ins. Feel free to pull that up and use those. Here's the first thing that he is saying. Number one, he didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't plan to throw it away or minimize it or set it aside. See, the law revealed so much of God's character. Like the fact that God cares for foreigners or for employees, or for whatever the caste system might be of whoever's on the lowest end of that system in the particular culture. God cares for those people. And I don't know that we would know that entirely if it weren't for this law in the Old Testament where God declares his heart for people. God cares about what we put in our bodies. And I don't know that we would know that Except God was so specific about, like, his care for that. That doesn't mean that we should try to not eat certain things or this or that, or I'm going to have to look in the Old Testament and find out if I can eat shrimp or not. But it does set up his character as a God who cares about the littlest details of our lives. And, and you read maybe the Old Testament, you're going to get all motivated today and go home and read Leviticus, and you're going to be like, that Chris is weird, man. I don't know what's wrong with him. Because it starts talking about mold on garments, and you're like, why does God care about mold? Here's the theological answer. I don't know. But I know that if he cares about mold on my shirt, man, he's got to care so much more about me. See, it reveals the character of God. It gives us such a rich picture of who he is. So Jesus, number one, did not come to abolish the law. That's what he's saying. Or throw it away or minimize it. It reveals God's character in a great way. Here's the second thing Jesus is saying, is that he came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the law. The word fulfill literally means to make full, to cause to abound, to fill to the top, to carry into effect, to bring to realization. See, that, that whole law we said earlier, it, it had these built-in deficiencies to it that always kind of made you go, there's got to be something more. Like, this can't be all there is to it. Because it wasn't. It wasn't all there is to it. There was something more. And that something more was Jesus. Like the entire law points to Jesus. To say it positively, there was this built-in anticipation to the law of yes, we're living these rules and yes, we're doing these sacrifices when we break it, but there's going to be something better that comes. And that something better is Jesus. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. I'm that something better that the law has been pointing to. See, it's, it's like a cup of water. You go into a restaurant and you order a cup of water, ask for a cup of water. And there's always that bit at the top, right, that's left uh, unfilled because, you know, people don't want you to spill and you need to figure out how to drink or whatever. So it's that, 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 that part that's left at the top in that cup of water. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill that. He, like, fills up that cup to, I think it's hydrostatic. I don't know what the cool word is. But that, when it has that weird water bubble over the top so you can't even move the glass, so that if you try and take a drink, you have to, like, go right? Because if you move it, it'll spill. Do you know what I'm talking about? You're with me, right? Jesus like fills up that glass so there is no more room. Like there is literally nothing you could do to put something more into that glass. 
When Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, it's like he's filled up that glass and there is literally nothing left for you to do. Theologian D.A. Carson, he describes it this way. He says, to cause God's law to be obeyed as it should be and God's promises to receive fulfillment. See, this, this law had this built-in deficiency. There was more that was needed and Jesus was that more. So when he says, I've come to fulfill the law, that's the image that gets put in our heads. Here's the third thing that Jesus says. Jesus says, your spirituality must surpass that of the law. Your spirituality must surpass that of the law, which is completely impossible if we think about the law as something that I have to work harder to try to fulfill. Because you can't. 615 rules, holy cow. That's a ton of things to try to remember. And then Jesus uses an image that to the original hearers would have made a ton of sense and to us makes some sense. He says, he says like the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees, if anybody had a shot of fulfilling the law and doing it right and well, it was these Pharisees. Their entire world was wrapped up in learning the law and obeying it to the letter. Matter of fact, the, the, the law might have been like, don't do this. And the Pharisees were like, man, we are so afraid of breaking that, of, of, of doing the things that we've said not to do, that we're going to create these laws around it so that we don't even get close to breaking that. Because if we don't break these, then we won't even get close to that. But, you know, we're so afraid that we're going to break this, that we might break this, we're going to create another set of laws around that. Because if we don't break that, we certainly won't break that, and we'll never break this. So God said something like, hey, once a week I want you to have a rest time called a Sabbath. I want you to rest. Right? Rest and worship. And the Pharisees said, man, we're afraid we're going to break that. So we're going to write this law that says uh, on Sabbath, everything is going to be closed. Nobody's going to work at all because we don't want to break this law. So we have this law. And then they started thinking, man, what if we accidentally break that law? We're going to come up with another set of laws. On the Sabbath, you can only walk 84 steps because 85 might mean work. On the Sabbath, you can only roll over in bed and hit snooze twice because the third time might be work. We don't want to break this law or this law, so we'll be... The Pharisees were like masters of trying to figure out how to not break God's law, how to follow it. And if anybody could have followed it perfectly, it would have been those guys. And Jesus says, your righteousness, your rightness with God has to be better than what the Pharisees are doing. If, if we think it means working harder or better, oh man, you're doomed. I'm doomed. Because it's not about working harder or, or do, working better or finding a better plan. It can't be about those things. The righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, that surpasses that of the law, is not bound up in keeping the rules. The Pharisees were doing that really well. The problem the Pharisees had was a heart problem. They had all these rules laid out and they had no problem keeping those. The problem is that for them it was all about the rules and not about the God that the rules were pointing to. And so for them, it was a heart problem. So Jesus comes and says, your righteousness has to be bigger, better, more than the righteousness of the law, more than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And the only way that can happen is if it's wrapped up in a heart that's close to Christ. If it's wrapped up in rules and doing, then it's, it's never going to get us there. This righteousness is of a different kind and quality, not an increased quantity. So the hope that we have is not the law or the rules or religion. It's in a relationship with Jesus. Knowing, loving, and following him is where this spirituality that surpasses the law is found. 
And that really sets up the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. This next few verses that we'll look at over the next number of weeks, the next couple chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus is going to get very specific. He's going to talk about lust, and he's going to talk about anger, and he's going to talk about how you use your mouth. He's going to talk about prayer. He's going to talk about all these things. And it all starts from this concept that the rules, it's not about the law and the rules. It's all about this heart with God. It's all about this heart with Jesus. And Jesus is going to begin to rip that open. Three things that Jesus is saying. He came to fulfill the law. That uh, he, he, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And your spirituality must surpass that of the law. Here's three things Jesus is not saying. Three things Jesus is not saying. Number one, he is not saying that the law doesn't matter. That it never mattered or that it's no big deal. The law is this vital piece of God's history with people. The law is this, is this thing that totally reveals God's character in a unique, new, and fresh way. Matter of fact, uh, the, the law has this special place. Uh, there's a, a later disciple of Jesus. His name is Paul. He, he writes a bunch of the New Testament letters, the things we call uh, books. In the one uh, called Galatians, it's to a church in Galatia, he writes, and, and Paul is an adamant um, defender of this concept that the law was good for a time, but it was always lacking, and Jesus finished that, filled that, fulfilled that, accomplished it. He was this adamant speaker about it and writer and debater because he was talking to Jews that were struggling to get their head around this. Because for thousands of years, it looked like this, and now Jesus is saying, yeah, now it looks like this. And so what do we do with that? And so this is what Paul says in Galatians 3, starting in verse 23. He says, before the coming of this faith, meaning Jesus, Uh, We were held in custody under the law, locked up until this faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, and we might be justified by faith. And now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. He he uses like uh, language you would use for a child. Like for when mom and dad go away on a trip, oftentimes for kids especially, they'll provide a guardian, someone to come. We call them babysitter or whatever, right? Like someone's going to come and make sure kid doesn't burn down the house, right? And so that's what the law was. It was like this guardian for kids. It was this guardian for people for a time so they didn't burn down the house, right? But when dad, when mom and dad get back home, the babysitter doesn't stay. That would be weird, right? The babysitter leaves. And so the, now that Jesus came, that law, that guardian, it's, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't stay. It doesn't stay in the same way. So Jesus is not saying that the law doesn't matter or never mattered. Matter of fact, it was an incredibly important piece of history that reveals God's character. Here's the second thing that Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that we should now try and follow the law. So if you walk out of here and you make a list of these 615 things and you try and live like like A.J. Jacobs did, well, good for you, that's weird, Uh, you're welcome to. But that is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that we should somehow try and follow the law. He's not advocating going back to it. I mean, in that analogy of the cup where that water is bubbled over the top, there's literally nothing else you could add in there. And Jesus is not saying you're going to try and add something in there by following the law. Matter of fact, Paul, as he's finishing this debate in Galatians in chapter 4, he says this about that concept. He says, but now that you know God, but now that you know God, or, or rather known by God, How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? 
It's like Paul calls the law weak and miserable. And this is, Paul is a Jewish Jew. Like, he loves the law. He doesn't think that the law is weak or horrible or whatever. But, but he's using this pejorative language, this over-the-top negative language to try and get an, an emotion, a reaction out of his listeners. And he's saying, you're going to go back to the weak thing? You're going to go back to that thing that was miserable? And, it, and it, I mean, it kind of was miserable because it always left them wanting more, never completely satisfied. It was really hard and near impossible to do, so there was some misery that, that came with it. But Paul is using this language to try and get them to think. He says, after Jesus has come and filled that cup up all the way, like you're going to go back to the thing that just left the cup half empty. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Third thing, third thing that Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that you have to work harder to be more spiritual. He's not saying you have to work harder to be more spiritual. Uh, righteousness or spirituality that surpasses that of the most religious people around is not found in an action. It's found in a relationship. Yes, that relationship will result in action. And yes, that will require effort and work and challenge and sacrifice. And honestly, a relationship with Jesus requires all of you. It's not a part, partial thing. Requires everything you are and everything you think. But it doesn't start with an action. It starts with a relationship. It doesn't mean you work to get there. First you know Jesus, and then you respond to the knowing of Jesus. Why does any of this matter? Why do we care? Why should it matter? Why do, what's the point? Here we go. Three things, because three seems to be the number of the day. So three things. Number one, it really isn't about rules. It really isn't about rules. This relationship with Jesus thing, this thing we call Christianity or whatever, it isn't about rules. There is no checklist. Thank, thank God for that. Right? There's incredible freedom that comes in that. If and when you read the, the letter to the church in Galatia, Galatians, you have to read it with this Scottish accent because it sounds like William Wallace from Braveheart. Like he's yelling freedom all over the place because this relationship that we have with Jesus is so much freedom. We're not bound by these 600 rules. We're not bound by new rules you could come up with. We're not bound by old rules. We're just in this relationship with Jesus. It certainly results in living in ways that please him, but it doesn't start with all these rules that we have to try and hold to. It is absolutely freeing. There's nothing that we have to do to try and stay in this relationship with God. And to tell you the truth, uh, it is the only, it is the distinctive mark of what we call Christianity. Every other religion has all these things that you have to do to try and stay in it. It's like the law all over again. Like this thing that we have with Jesus, it's totally different than any other religion that, that people adhere to or go after or whatever. So number one, it really isn't about rules. It's absolute freedom. Number two, the Old Testament matters a ton. This thing that we call the Old Testament, all those books before Matthew, that you're like, you're not going to make us read them, are you, Chris? Nope, nope, but it matters a ton. So yeah, you should read them. Uh, they're, they're interesting. Like live those stories, find those characters, grapple with the culturally weird stuff. Look at how it describes God and how God's people were asked to relate to him back then. There's something really rich about that. It was 1998. 
Uh, I, I was just finishing up uh, four years at Bible college. I'd had a ton of uh, Old Testament classes and whatnot. And honestly, I was not into the Old Testament. It was just kind of this weird collection of stories and events and people. Like, like some of the stories about a guy named David, that was cool because he used like rocks and stuff. But some of the other stuff, I was like, I don't know, like Hezekiah, what? And so, and so what I, I wasn't really into it. And then in 98, I had the opportunity uh, through a church I was at to go to Israel. And I stood in the places that these things happened. And it totally revolutionized my entire concept of the Old Testament. All of a sudden, that stuff made some sense. And all of a sudden, I began to put together the connections between all that stuff in that first half of the Bible and how it pointed to this Jesus who is the centerpiece of the second half and really the centerpiece of the entire thing. For me, that was pivotal to just begin to get an understanding of how the Old Testament sets up this Jesus who's going to come. The Old Testament matters uh, a ton. Here's the last thing of why I think it, it matters. You probably add some other reasons to this, but number three is uh, this has to impact how you see Jesus. Like this has to impact how you see Jesus. Jesus didn't just come to save you. Jesus came to save you, certainly. But he didn't just come to save you. He didn't just come to teach important stuff. Jesus taught important stuff. But he didn't just come to teach important stuff. See, Jesus came to give hope by finishing the homework that you could never have finished, by completing the task that you would have never found the time to do, by filling the missing pieces of your life, by doing what you and I could never, ever do. If I rewrote this text, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, if I rewrote it, we called it the New International Chris Version, this is how, uh, this is how I would write it. I think this is what is being said. It, it would sound like this, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus said, I've not come to tear down or destroy the law, but to fill what was lacking in it because you never could. Never in a million years would even the smallest piece of the law have been unexpected of you. It demanded to be fulfilled, which I am doing for you right now. This doesn't mean the law is unimportant or not worth knowing because it pointed to me. It required me to finish it. So tossing any pieces of it out would be minimizing what I've done for you. So your ability to be right with God isn't connected to checking off rules on a list like the Pharisees do. It has to be more than that, better, bigger, deeper. It has everything to do with living like me. Here's how we're going to finish uh, this morning. It makes a lot of sense to finish this morning by sharing in communion together. C communion is sort of like this, um, this setup for the bookend of this event. See, see communion, we, we, we know, is related to the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Matter of fact, communion, what we call communion, is sometimes called the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper because Jesus shared a meal with his guys on the last couple of days that he was on the planet with his disciples. And that's kind of what we do like in a, in a symbolic way when we share in communion. And the idea there is that in, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, I have come to finish the law. And then at the end of the Gospels, when Jesus is dying on the cross, he says, it is finished. It's like bookends. From the beginning of his story to the end of his story on the planet, like Jesus is working on finishing this for us. And so as our guys and gals come down this morning, they're going to pass you plates that have a cracker and some juice on it. I ask you if you just take that cracker and if you just take that juice, if you know Jesus, um, we'd ask you to do that. If you want to let it pass by you, that's, that's okay too. But if you would just hang on to those things for a couple of minutes, because we're going to take them together. In a couple of minutes when we're ready, we'll, we'll, we're going we're gonna to take the cracker and just eat that together. And, and then we'll, a couple minutes after that, we'll take that juice and drink it together. 
But as you're grabbing those and beginning to think, here's what I'd ask us to, to be thinking about. Honestly, whatever God's putting on your heart is more important. But, but if you need some directive, be thinking about in your own life, where are the areas that you just feel broken? What are the areas that you just feel are like missing? Like it just doesn't seem to be right. You know there's sin or you know there's miss or you know there's brokenness or you know there's something that you just dislike about you. Maybe that would be just in the front of your mind because the fact that, 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 that Jesus died to finish that, to wipe that, to clean that, to solve that, to fill that is a pretty amazing thing. the bread that was on the table and, and, he, and he broke it and as he broke that he, he told his guys he said you know what this is sort of like my body getting broken because in a couple of hours and a day here like my body's going to be broken up for you because I care so much about you living in a right relationship with God and this act this finishes that so you don't have to try and do all these rules you don't have to try and figure it out on your own my, my broken body is going to is going to finish that act and, and it's interesting because Crackers, I, I like when we use crackers because if you look at them, you notice that there's holes in them. And then depending on the size of piece that you have, there's also some burn marks on it where they've been cooked. And that's just interesting to me because, because the Old Testament tells us that Jesus, that the Messiah is going to be pierced and is going to be striped from some kind of a whip for us. These crackers are just a good symbol when we look at that. And every time I take communion, I think about that. What Jesus endured for me because of all of my brokenness, all of my not rightness, all of my messed upness to, to make me unbroken and right and not messed up. It's a very, very cool thing. So we'll take that cracker and we'll go and eat that together. grabbed um, the wine that was on the table, a pitcher of wine. We use juice um, as we do. And, and he grabbed that wine and he said, you know, this is a lot like my blood that, that's being poured out for you. And in the next couple of days, it's going to be poured out for you to finish all that we've been working on. He says, but not only that, he, he says, this, this wine is this great symbol of hope because he, he tells us, guys, I'm not going to drink this again until we're all together in heaven again. There is this great sense of hope that Jesus brings. Not because of my brokenness, but because of his greatness. Not because of my failings, but because of his finishing. And so as we, as we drink this together, I, I want us to walk out of here with this great sense of hope of what Christ accomplished for us. 
because frankly, he just loves us. That's an amazing thing. So we'll drink the cup together. Would you just pray with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for you. Thank you for your love for us. Thanks for even uh, the, the section of the law and the stuff that reveals your character and, and your Father's character that we may not know otherwise, God. Help us to become students of your word in a way that just draws us close to you, that helps us fall more in love with you, that gets us more fired up about living the adventure with you. Jesus, you would just do that for us so that our relationship with you is so fresh and so exciting that it just pours out to everybody around us. God, help us to be men and women who love you in ways that are so obvious to others. Not simply because we want them to see, but simply because it's so good and abundant and full for us. God, help with our junk. Help strip away the things that keep me from that. God, help help strip away the stuff that's just obstacles to me living full out for you. God, be good and show us what those are. Help us to just get rid of those things so we can live lives absolute goodness, absolute love for you, absolute adventure and fullness of you. Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your words to us. Thank you for your um, care for us. Jesus, I love you so much. Amen.